Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word story time, number 137. The only reverse quiz cricket history show on the internet. That's it. If that's what you're into, this is the only place you can get it. The show where we take your hand and take you on a wander along the laneways, uh, the, the back roads, the, the fields the hedgerows of cricket history. Jeff Lemon with you and welcoming back to the show. After a few weeks, you must be you must be raring to go. You must be limbered up and ready to tear out onto that field and just plough into it. He's got the new ball in hand, literally. Yes. Bharat Sundaresan, welcome back. Thanks, Jeff Lemon. And not to forget that this is my first sighting of you since the haircut. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it looks like you're set to go to war. Is what I can see. Like, you know, <laughs> it feels like I'm watching a period movie where the movie starts mate, with, the, with the... Mate, it's the ashes, mate. Uh-huh. Mate, when Australians go to England in the ashes, uh-huh, mate. There you mate, go. everybody, it's all in. It's all it's... for one, one for all, mate. Oh, come on. Yeah, mate, you got to get me singing True Blue, mate. True Blue, mate. <laughs> yeah, you got it in you, mate. You got it in you. Yeah. You never lose it, mate. Never lose it. <laughs> um, yeah, look, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be trying not to be a, a soldier in the ranks um, yeah. when it comes to media coverage of the Ashes, as, as we've generally tried not to be in the past, um, although there's something about that particular series that does make the most fettered weirdness come out of people who follow the great game of cricket trademark. Oh, very true. And especially this time around with uh, 
you know, so much talk of how England are going to play test cricket. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm not a big fan of hyperbole of any kind in life. Um, mm-hmm. Unless it has to do with wrestling and a wrestling storyline. So I think it's going to be a strange series in that sense. Uh, there will Already, I was so tempted to tweet out yesterday that it's the annual reminder that as well as Jofra Archer bowled in England, he hit Steve Smith because it was an uneven pitch. It wasn't because he was breathing fire and brimstone and Steve Smith was running for cover. But I didn't do it. But, you know, it, mm. it gets even the likes of you and me all riled up. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think he was breathing fire in that spell. It's just that Smith wasn't afraid of taking yes, the spell on. Yes, that's the point. That's the point. Yeah, it, it, was, it was one of the great individual battles that we've seen we've know, before seen, yeah. that point. So, yeah, uh, we've, we've talked about that on the weekly show and how sad it is that Archer won't be playing this time around, didn't play last time around. So it's, it's four years since that, oh. that wonderful entry to Test Cricket and... Who knows if we'll see him play a test match again. But he's not part of history yet. Mm. And this show is about cricket history. And we are going to get into it now via the medium of the game called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge. The game played with you, the beautiful people of the internet, who fund this program by sending in contributions that are not normal denominations they are very specific numbers that relate to cricket in some way and we have to work out what the number means first cab off the rank this week is a friend of the show pat rogers who has had a few nerd pledges before and it is his time to go again the number barat is three dollars and 39 cents that means that you could interpret 339 in any way that you choose and the clue which i will be taking on is this Frank is to Josh as William is to dot, dot, dot. Now, before I get started, I just wanted to ask, because the document we have, you can see the the number and the clue, but you can't see my answer. Yeah. I wondered what your initial thoughts were to this clue, because it's it's an intriguing one. It is, it is. And uh, for me, when I saw Frank to Josh, for some reason, I just thought from Frank Tyson to Josh Hazelwood, for for some reason, those just seemed like the most obvious Franks and Joshes to talk about. But then I thought maybe Frank Foster. He just assumed it's something to do with fast bowling. But then, yeah, I'm not sure. Then I got lost when they, I reached the part where he speaks about William and the dot, dot, dot. So that's where I got stuck. All right. Well, we're going to see where we end up with here. So initially, uh, well, like you, I thought, who's a Frank, who's a Josh? The oh. the first Josh to mind was Josh Hazelwood mm. and the first Frank to mind was of course Frank Ward <laughs> um, the leg spinner who knocked off Clary Grimmett. Now had a look for Franks in the through the, the, the history of test cricket players. Frank Worrell Frank Woolley, Frank Tyson, some good Franks. Frank Karuna Ratna as we yeah, oh, revealed forget, on this yeah. show a few weeks ago. Frank Dimuth Karuna Ratna, the current Sri Lankan captain. Um, there's Franklin Rose, who would be one of your favourites, I'm sure. Of course, yeah. Frankie Worrell. Mm-hmm. Well, yep, yep. That is in the new one, as in Dan Worrell, yeah, as yeah, opposed yeah. to the previous Frank Worrell. So it's not a modern name. The last Frank to play test matches was Frank Hayes, who debuted in 1973. Ooh. On the other hand, the, the only Joshes are modern Joshes. Hazelwood and Joshua De Silva, who wields that Woodstock bat, they're the only Joshes to have played Test cricket. There are a, a lot of Joshies from India, <laughs> but no Joshes. Yeah. So, 
I'm going back to an even earlier Frank, and this is a Frank who played for the West Indies in early days, Frank Jacares. Now, if you're confused by the name, D-E-C-A-I-R-E-S, but it's a Portuguese name, so I'll give it my best attempt at pronunciation there, I'm sure. Jacares is is how they would say it in in an anglicised way. Frank Ignatius Jacares, who was a colonial product, born in Guyana, in 1909 so he he was a Portuguese background his parents were but he was raised in that British colonial system so there's a, there's a very sort of British flavour to what happens next he plays provincial cricket and when the MCC send their first touring team to the Caribbean in 1930 he's in and he's up against a pretty handy English team even though they've got two test teams going at the same mm. time George Gunn is there Andy Sandham Patsy Hendren Les Ames is the wicketkeeper Wilfred Rhodes is bowling and Frank Jacaris makes 80 and then 70 on debut to help secure a draw in their their first visit from the MCC not bad makes a duck and 45 in the second test and gets dropped for the third test of that series and he comes back for the fourth test which is when Andy Sandham makes his triple hundred the first test triple hundred so not much fun as a test to come back into Frank makes 21 and 16 so you know not too bad as a debut series he does travel to Australia for a future series but doesn't play any of the tests and that's that that's his test career so he has a son David Jacaris who is quite famous in Guyana for spending his life at odds with the government and particularly with government censorship after independence Um, he was a lawyer he spent a lot of time in court representing people who were charged for criticising the government in one way or another. And in 1986, he started his own newspaper, which was called Starbrook, which was very influential mm. in Guyana and across the region. Yeah. David has a daughter, Isabel de Caris, who might also be a lawyer. I'm not quite sure. She's, she's certainly vocal in defence of Guyana, sort of culturally and economically. And Isabel de Caris marries a fellow you might have heard of called Michael Atherton. Yeah. And they have a son, Josh, who is currently on Middlesex's list, right? So who debuted in 2021, I think, in first-class cricket for Middlesex. He's only played a couple of games, but still around in the second eleven system. So Frank Dukaitis has a great-grandson in Josh Dukaitis, and they've both played top-level cricket. Frank is to Josh what William is to dot, dot, dot. So I'm going to assume, because Pat Rogers is a historian and, oh. and you know, he's, he's proper at this stuff and so this meant that I, I felt obliged to hit the right level in return and I'm going to assume that everything's very deliberate, including the use of William as the name, as the full name. So when you look up names on cricket databases, as you will know, Barrett, there is a weird hodgepodge of how they mm. name people, yeah. um, whether they use the preferred or the common name, yeah. the commonly used name, or whether they use the full name, or whether they sometimes use a nickname if that nickname is so pervasive that it's the only thing that person was ever known as. You know, Monkey Hornsby was not christened <laughs> Monkey Hornsby, but that's how you'll find his profile in a lot of places. So if you're looking for Williams, who played Test cricket, you might count Will Somerville, who's currently getting around for New Zealand. But before that, the last official William who played Test cricket was Dodger Weissall, who we talked about some weeks ago 
who died on the dance floor, who finished up his test career in 1930. He was mm. William Weissall on his, on his official cricket right. listing, but some will list him as Dodger, so maybe it's not even him. But there are lots of bills. So there are 10 mm. billies and 35 bills listed as playing test cricket, and they last up until the 1980s. I think Bill Athey's probably the last bill to, to play test cricket. But, but you'll hear people say William Morris Laurie, yeah. um, but Bill, he's Bill Laurie on yeah, his cricket yeah, listing. So, so if we're looking for actual Williams who have descendants. William Mool played in Australia's first test in England in 1880. He was the grandfather of David Hay, who was a very celebrated diplomat um, who was eventually knighted, who, among other things, oversaw Australia's extraction from Papua New Guinea in the 1970s. And he did play first-class cricket, but he played four times for Oxford. So, you know, it's kind of... It's the first-class cricket you have when you're not having first-class cricket. (laughs) That doesn't quite fit for me. But William Henry Cooper, he's not listed as Billy Cooper. Billy Cooper was the trumpet player for the Barmy Army. William Henry Cooper played in the very early days for Australian Test Cricket and under that random naming convention, he is listed as William, not as Bill or or anything else. He was born in Kent in 1849, emigrates to Australia at the age of seven, doesn't play cricket until 27 years old when his doctor says, you need to have some activity in your life, go and take up a physical pursuit. So he starts playing cricket, starts bowling leg spin, and I can only assume that he gives them an almighty rip because by the age of 29, he's playing for Victoria. Either that or the standard was just completely shithouse back then. (laughs) And by 32, having not bowled until he was 27 years old, by 32, he's picked for Australia at the MCG. He takes three wickets in the first innings, six wickets in the second innings, nine for the match, leaving Australia 283 to chase. But unfortunately, they had not yet heard of baseball. didn't oh. exist. So they couldn't chase 283. They, they blocked it out for a draw. Uh, he doesn't play the next three tests in that series, but three years later, he again plays the first test of the series, this time in Adelaide. Doesn't get to bowl much. George Giffen is hogging all the overs and England are only chasing a, a small target second innings, but so he doesn't get to bowl at all in the second innings. But th- that's his test career, two tests and done as a leg spinner, although he does become the Victorian champion of lawn bowls as a much older man. So I said that Pat Rogers is a historian, which means that I needed to find out some family history and I spent an entire day trawling the births, deaths and marriages register because let me tell you, Barrett Cinderace, if you are searching for William Cooper in the early databases of Australian colonial life, fuck me, there are William Coopers (laughs) coming out of every doorway. Everybody's William Cooper. Everybody's married a William Cooper. Everybody's given birth to a William Cooper. It is an extremely common name. So <laughs> eventually, this is, this, I had to do a lot of triangulation and, and I'm pretty pleased with where I've got to mm, here. Mm. So William Henry Cooper, born in 1849, marries Mary Glyas Pascoe. I can't find the date of their wedding, but I can find that in 1875 their son, Percy Albert Cooper is born, listed in Emerald Hill. What's Emerald Hill? Uh, well, it turns out that Emerald Hill is the name for South Melbourne that they used to use back then for oh. reasons best known to them. So Percy, their son, is born in 1875. Ethel is born in 1877. Arthur Henry, T 
taking his father's middle name, is born in 1880. In 1886, they lose an infant son who was born a couple of years earlier named Garnet, who dies as a toddler. And in 1888, they have another son, William Stanley Cooper, so William Jr. William Jr. goes on to serve as a lieutenant in the AIF, the, the Australian Infantry Force overseas in World War One. He joins up in January 1916. He serves for nearly two years before he's killed in action in Belgium in late 1917. I know there are a lot of dates and names here, oh. but bear with me. So this is William Jr., who is a, a, an officer in an artillery battery, so he's usually behind the lines. He goes forward to the lines to monitor what's happening um, in terms of their, uh, their their trajectory. And at about five in the morning, um, he's killed up at the front line. The report, so I managed to, the Australian War Memorial has amazing archives mm. and, and I managed to get in there as well and find the archives, including all of the letters that have gone back and forth between different uh, soldiers and officers piecing together the facts about his death. And uh, one of them writes, on September 20, I saw him carried wounded past the battery. Signaler Burton said they were in the observation post at the time and a shell landed close to them from which Lieutenant Cooper got splinters in five places. He was conscious when he was carried past me but seemed to be bleeding profusely. There was a big stunt on at the time, the first hop over at Menon Road. So it's, it's fascinating to be able to get the language of, mm. of the soldiers at the time. So he makes it into the Canadian Casualty Clearing Station but dies a couple of days later of septicemia in the wounds. They don't have antibiotics during the First World War. They don't have them during the Second World War either. So William Jr. dies in 1917. His mother, Mary, dies in 1922 and his dad, William Cooper Sr., dies in 1939 at the age of 90. He's Australia's oldest living test cricketer at the time. Mm. So the, the parents are survived by Percy, Ethel and Arthur are their three surviving children. Arthur Henry Cooper, in the meantime, has married a woman named Edith Mabel Portlock and they have a daughter... It's, this is this is it's amazing what you can find through the yeah. registry. I've been able to track down all of these birth certificates, marriage certificates, and so on. They have a daughter, Mabel Constance Cooper, who was born in 1911, so just before the First World War and, and before her uncle is killed. In 1940, she marries a fella named John William Sheehan, and six months later, in 1946, six years later rather, 1946, they have a son named Andrew Sheehan. A close family friend of the family also have a son of the same age called Andrew. So our Andrew, the William Aww. Cooper family Andrew, from childhood is called by his middle name. His middle name is Paul. And if you listened a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember that Paul Sheehan debuted Aww. for Victoria in 1965 and Australia in 1966, played 31 test matches. So... Frank Jakaris is to Josh Jakaris, wow. a cricketing great-great-grandfather to a cricketing great-great-grandson. Sorry, one great-great-grandson. Mm. And William Cooper is to Paul Sheehan, a great-grandfather to a great-grandson, both of whom played test cricket for Australia. There you go, Pat Rogers. You know, there are times when you wonder why we do this, Jeff Lemon. I'm going to sound like a war veteran here. <laughs> but you... you think why we dig so deep and look at newspapers from a bygone era and try to be bring the best for our nerd pledges. But I think you just nailed it. If anyone ever wanted to know 
what nerd pledge and story time is all about they just needed to listen to jeff lemon for the last 10 or 15 minutes because this is what it's all about when he said at the top of the show that we're going to hold their hands and take them on a journey i don't know for why what reason i started thinking of eric clapton singing tears in heaven but uh, yeah this this is i have tears in story time heaven right now just listening to you the, the only problem is I completely forgot to figure out what the number meant. Yeah. I, <laughs> I thought of that as so. well, but I thought it's okay. Let's not get a great story uh, or uh, some random numbers get in front of a great story. <laughs> I just spent so long on all of the other stuff and I knew that I had the right answer. I just can't actually... Maybe Paul Sheen's what. the 339th cricketer to play for Australia? Nah, it can't be. Um, no, no. No, that would be too... Two, no, yeah, no. I'm Shane, Shane Warne's 350s. So. Exactly, yeah. No, it can't yeah. be. Uh, uh, he hits 39 first-class 50s, Paul Shane. <laughs> but I don't know where the three comes from. Josh Hazelwood's... Um, anyway, uh, I'm in. sure Pat can let us know. I, yeah, think, yeah. I, think, that's, uh, I think that's probably a token at this point. True. But yeah, yeah. with the clue alone, we've managed to solve that. Um, and now, at last, it's time for you to get into your first number, which comes in... <laughs> From Richard Jance Moore, who has also been on the show before in Great British Pounds this time, £7.60, he says, in completely unpredictable fashion, it's another Northants clue. Richard is a, a mad Northamptonshire supporter in England, count, in English county cricket, and all of his clues have involved Northants. And thanks for that, Richard. Uh, I did not grow up as a Northamptonshire fan, but thanks to your number, I've learned a lot about Northamptonshire cricket. And uh, when I am in England this time, I want to go to Northampton just to soak in everything that I have learned about Northamptonshire. So 7.60, the most obvious number I had for you was Johan Wanderwatt, the guy, the South African Volkswagen. There you go, my V's and my W's on cue there, as he was called by Telford Wise in 2006. Took 7 for 60 in 2008. Uh, great figures. Uh, I learned a little bit about Johan Wanderwatt as a result. Loves to quad bike. He was banned by Cricket South Africa just a year before that for having participated in the ICL. Also famous in Australian cricket circles for having hit that famous six in the 430-odd run chase in Johannesburg. Uh, so he, he was barred, barred by CSA, but the ECB somehow found an exception exemption for Johan. He plays for Northamptonshire, takes seven for 60. But funnily enough, it must not have been... Maybe a very... they just considered that playing for Northants was a punishment in itself. Maybe they did, yeah. Uh, one of the few... Oh, yeah, no, I'll, I'll leave that for later. But... Uh, uh, maybe they did. Uh, I haven't been to Northampton. Is it a place worth visiting? Oh, no, it's a lovely place. It's just that the team has um, traditionally, yeah. you'd say, come up against a relative lack of success. No, I, in fact, I have been to Northampton to uh, interview Alan Lamb as part of our uh, campervan thing the last time when he said, you can go to the county ground and watch uh, the game, just give them my name, which I did. But then the security guard thought didn't I was work. lying and didn't. That's right. <laughs> I remember you told me. Yeah. Uh, so, Johan Vanderbilt, 7 for 60. There's also Rob White, that classic county cricketer. When I was growing up in the 90s, and uh, especially when I really got into my county cricket in the early 2000s, Rob White... Alex Swan, for some reason. These were the guys I really liked. The opening batters um, who would just bat 
uh, score a lot of runs every season, but still somehow finish up with an average of 31-32. Uh, so Rob White was uh, a, a classic uh, Northamptonshire cricketer, opened a lot. Hit 764s in his first class career. I thought maybe that's what you're looking for. But then I found yeah. the perfect 760. And even if your number doesn't have to do with this guy, it should. Because this was a guy who put Northamptonshire cricketer, uh, cricket on the map. And I'm talking about none other than the great George Tribe. Former great oh. Australian rules footballer, played for Footscray, scored, uh, I think, was known for his goal scoring, 80 goals in 66 league games between 1940 and 46. So he's born in Victoria, uh, hardcore Victorian, plays uh, three test matches for Australia, uh, starts his career off as a left-arm orthodox spinner, but then says, no, I think left-arm wrist spins more effective and masters the art before most guys had done at that point. Plays three yeah. test matches, doesn't have too much of an impact. He's, he's dropped, even though Bradman's a big fan of George Tribe. And he says, you know what, do heck with Australia. I'm going to try my hand in England. Goes to England, not just to play cricket, but to uh, pursue another profession. Meets his wife, has twins. In the early 50s, Australia is still kind of keen on bringing him back. But by then, he's like, you know what? Nah, it's fine. I'm settled in England. Starts playing league cricket in Lancashire, of all places. But of suddenly, in 1951, uh, North, he catches the eye of the Northamptonshire club, who at that point are desperately looking for some somebody to come in. And uh, I think even in league cricket, he makes a name for himself with uh, just his ability to the kind of variety which wasn't very common back in the day. He has the googly, he has a really good uh, left arm leg break, wrist spin delivery, hmm. which kind of turns away from the left-hander. Is he still like throwing finger spin into the mix? Like does he, is he an all sorts bowler? Very rarely. I mean, he, the uh, only batters who could read him, uh, read his uh, left arm wrist spin, that's the only time he reverts to left arm orthodox spin. And he seems like such a canny operator. So ta Tom Graveney apparently was one batter who, he, who had no trouble against him. So apparently what he would do is he would always give a single off to Tom Graveney and bowl at the other batters. So, <laughs> <laughs> so apart from, him, from being a very uh, wily spinner, he was also a very wily operator in terms of how he got his wickets. Uh, but, but, you know, the George Tribe story doesn't stop there. So he, like I said, he has nine seasons for Northamptonshire cricket. Seven of those seasons from 1952 to, uh, or 1951 to 1960, he takes, has the double of 1,000 runs and uh, over 100 wickets. Uh, and Northamptonshire, as we know, one of the few counties to have never won the championship. And they only finished runners-up three times in the history of the county championship. The first time was in 1912, the second time in 1957. And who was the main contributor to that effort? George Tribe, who also was 1955 Wisden Cricketer of the Year. Um, mm. He has a, has, a, has a great run, 140 wickets at 18.71, seven five-wicket hauls. Also makes 1181 runs. Uh, it, he isn't their best performer. You still have the likes of Frank Tyson operating uh, from the other end. But uh, it, it's one of a solid season. It's not even his best season for the county. So he really takes Northamptonshire from being a kind of laughing stock, like you said, to being a serious serious team who almost win a county championship. And as we know, we're still waiting for that to happen. Someone like Lawrence Booth, mm. who I know is a huge Northamptonshire fan. I remember playing a journalist game against him in Mumbai and there he was with, proudly with his Northamptonshire cap. And if he thought that that would be the only time a Northamptonshire cricketer would, you know, make an impact in India, Lawrence Booth, of all people, 
he's wrong because George Tribe, Victorian footy player, played four years for Footscray and nine seasons of Northamptonshire cricket and a test cricket of Australia, also has something that uh, very few people can say. Because like I said, George Tribe, born in Victoria, played footy for Footscray, played county cricket for Northamptonshire, played test cricket for Australia. But in 1949-50, was awarded the Indian Cricketer of the Year. Now, if you're wondering how George Tribe ended up getting that award, because he was part of a <laughs> MCC tour of the Commonwealth in 1949-50. And the team included the likes of uh, the great oh. Sir Frank Worrell, uh, John Holt, who played for the West Indies as well. Of course. Um, and he goes and plays... Was Cess Pepper in those teams? Cess Pepper Cess was part Pepper? of that side as well. Yeah. Very good point, yes. Uh, and he takes 84 wickets at 18. And uh, he gets... I mean, he dismisses the likes of Vijay Merchant and Vijay Azare and Vinu Mankar and Pauli Umrigar on multiple occasions because this team, yeah. they, they played over 20 games on this tour. So, so they must have spent a lot of time in India, maybe a few months, traveling around the country. And uh, India is, what, two years old at this stage since independence. Uh, so he has a big impact there uh, to the extent, like I said, he finishes up as the... Indian cricketer of the year 1949-50. Uh, no connection, other connection to Indian cricket. And he still holds the record for the most wickets in a season for the county. 175 he took in 1955 when he won the Wisden Cricketer of the Year. Best match analysis, 15 for 31 uh, against Yorkshire in 1958. And he was also the second oldest living cricketer when he died in 2009. So he moves back to Australia and he, he dies in Australia. And, and when he died... There were tributes from everywhere, all around the world. Frank Tyson had always said that he's probably the best cricketer I ever played with and it was criminal that he didn't play more test cricket for Australia. Richie Beno, being Richie Beno, of course, had this great line about George Tribe. He said he would run under a bush to take a catch. Official and bowling. So, you know, he kind of thought he was a pretty selfish cricketer, but I think he was um, only semi-kidding. So, uh, and he had this lovely nickname, I love this, called Tripod whenever he was batting because of the shapes he got into while trying to clobber the ball over the leg side. Mm -hmm. uh, and he also had a delivery called the Squibber, which would kind of, uh, I think it was the early doors, uh, uh, the, the, the f sort of flipper, but uh, I don't know why it was called the Squibber, but apparently it would just mm -hmm. slid on and uh, get a lot of uh, English batters into trouble. And for the longest time, it was believed that he didn't play more for Australia because the great Australian wicketkeeper Don Talon couldn't pick him. And he always said, no, 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 keep that tribe fellow away. Like, I can't pick him. Ah. So, yeah. And, and why George Tribe and why 760? 760, the number of balls he bowled in test cricket in the three test matches he played. So maybe not what you were looking for, but that's what you get. Okay. Well, sometimes sometimes what you get is better than what you were looking hmm. for to begin with. Yeah, I remember we, we had an answer on that Commonwealth series maybe a year ago um, about uh, about Jock Livingston, who was mm. the, the top order player in that series, who who never officially played for Australia, even though he played against India in those first-class matches that weren't, weren't deemed test matches in the end. So, yeah, it, it stays in the memory. All right, very good. Thank you, Richard Jantz, more for playing again. Chris Byrne has come around with £10 flat and sent a message to clarify that this is not a Julio pledge. A Julio pledge is the opposite of a nerd pledge. Yeah. If you if you don't want a number, you just want to support the show, you send a Julio. If you want to nerd it up with us, you send a nerd. 
Chris Burns' 10 pounds is a nerd pledge um, and he says, I will be sticking with Gloucestershire in this case. We've got a very strong theme here. Mm. Gloucestershire with a hint of Victoria for this new number. It should really be one pound rather than 10 pounds, but the former seemed stingy for the hours of entertainment and discovery I always get from you. <laughs> so that's very nice. Thank you, Chris, for, for coming through strong like that and slapping a tenor on the bar. Mm. Now, Gloucestershire with a hint of Victoria... There can only be one thing that this refers to. There's only one reason, Bharat, why on the final word we traditionally refer to the Gloucestershire County cricket team as the Freaks, hmm. as in that's their team nickname, uh, because Ian Harvey, the Freak, was else, yeah. the assistant coach from 2015 to 2022. He was the interim head coach in, in 2021 when Richard Dawson got poached by the ECB. And this was... Total speculation, and I have no idea uh, if this is the case, but I, it reads as though his departure might have been to do with the fact that they brought Dale Benkenstein in as the head coach instead of keeping Ian Harvey as the head coach mm. because when you, if you're the, you're the assistant coach for years, then you're the interim coach. Obviously, you apply for the job, so he must have applied for the job and not got it. And then before the, the following season really got going in May 2022, he decided to leave so anyway that's just my guess but um you know if anybody knows more they can tell me now he's got that connection as a coach because of his links as a player for the club from 1999 through mostly he has a little dalliance with Yorkshire at one point but through to 2006 he keeps playing for Gloucestershire for the most part when he starts it's county championship and one day stuff I mean he's he's one day record for Gloucestershire he's it's extraordinary. So his batting average goes up every season for his first Ooh. five seasons. This is in Champo cricket. He takes a stack of wickets. Most of his, all of his seasons are either low 20s or teens for the averages. But in one day cricket, 211 wickets at an average of 15 Ooh. and almost 3,000 runs averaging 31. Like he's hella good as, as a, an all-rounder. And what's maybe even better for him is that they have him at his peak when... T20 cricket gets going in 2003 and he's basically the prototype T20 cricketer you know can bat can bowl looks for the boundary looks for the Yorker has the variations and the slower balls before most players did and he was never more the prototype player than a day against Warwickshire in 2003 when he dominates Edgebaston, makes it his home ground for the day. They're playing for a spot in the semi-finals. We talked about John Lewis on the show mm. only a week or two ago, um, the Gloucestershire bowler. He takes two wickets in two balls to start the Warwickshire batting innings. And, and nothing Barat says early T20 cricket like this. Jonathan Trott opening the batting. <laughs> playing through the innings, 65 not out after 20 overs. <laughs> and they post 134. Ooh, really went for it. Ian Harvey, on the other hand, he does know how to play T20 cricket, even though they've just invented it. He also opens the batting, hits 13 fours and four sixes in his innings. By the time his batting partner, Craig Spearman, one of your favourites, oh, yeah. is, is out for 23... The score is 96. <laughs> so Harvey's made the rest of them. Jonty Rhodes gets out for one. They're the only two wickets to fall because the Freak scores his 100th run from his 50th ball and wins the match in 13.1 overs <laughs> start to finish. Um, the nerd pledge number for Chris Byrne is one. I would say 
partly because, well, he took one ball to score every two runs, hmm. maybe partly because he made one T20 hundred for Gloucestershire. That was it. That was the only time that happened. He didn't play a lot of T20 cricket for them, only a couple of seasons, and they didn't play a lot of matches in those days. But I think primarily because his hundred was number one. It was the very first century ever made in professional 20 over cricket a record that they can never ever take away from the freak that is my bid for you chris burn with your number one freaky is what i can say yeah that's brilliant well done jeff levin it has to be that and yeah i mean I, that's I, a good I, get i'm pretty happy with that it's brilliant yeah and i think you nailed it like when you think you're right when you think gloucestershire and with a hint of victoria how can you not talk about Ian Harvey? And I used to be a huge fan of Ian Harvey. So, and not just the freaky things he did with the ball or on the field, but some of the return catches that he took. I mean, that could just be a compilation of Ian mm-hmm. Harvey's return catches from all cricket. And uh, yeah, we could just watch it on loop. Yep, yep. And um, yeah, some of his, his work more broadly in the field, he, he had everything going for him. Hi, I'm Natalie Jemanis, and you listen to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Cruz. Right, you, Barat, have a double header mm. to tackle. It comes in from Alan Simpson in pounds and Paul Harmer in Australian dollars, and it is $3 slash pounds 57, 357. What did you make of that? Well, look, it's me, so you get multiple answers when I get a number. So, <laughs> so, and I've broken it up into the Australian 357 for Paul and the English 357 for Alan. So we'll start with the Australian. Uh, okay. And before we get into the main answer, Brendan Julian, test cap number 357, also mm-hmm. finished with a first-class bowling average of 35.7. So that's Yee. great symmetry there. Which is also oh. Dennis Lilly's list A economy rate. So you, you can see I basically okay. did a lot of research on 357. Yeah. I didn't know that. I mean, that's that's a beautiful little moment of synchronicity. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh, and yeah. also, uh, uh, my great moment during this Australian Test summer was, uh, I have to say this, I, to digress, Ian Smith's highest test score is the same as his height in centimetres. And <laughs> I was the one who told this to him on commentary. <laughs> and that's great, right? A run for every centimetre of your height, or like, you know, uh, which is, yeah, we need to find more numbers like that. Yeah, that's right up there with um, the run time of Sultans of Swing is the same as such. <laughs> that was, I have never bettering that, right? Like that's my, that's what I'm going to hang my hat <laughs> on to the end of my life. Uh, I'm never getting better than that. But I think the 357 uh, Paul's speaking about, and I'm going to assume this, is when the great Sir Donald Bradman made 357 for South Australia against Victoria at the J in early 1936. He made those 357 runs in 421 minutes, so fast scoring 357. And also, I think the 357, the, the overall total or South Australia's total was some 569. So not quite a bannerman, but in terms of someone making a big triple hundred, that's, that's a significant mm. contribution, you would say. And it wasn't just that innings that was important. It's also... His first season for South Australia, so Don Bradman's just made the move from Adelaide. And if you remember, he misses the 34-35 Sheffield Shield season because earlier that year, after the Ashes in England, he gets appendicitis. And there's a massive health scare 
where it uh, is feared that you know he's fighting for his life he's in hospital as we know uh, and I, i i kind of found it like intriguing that uh, the was it king george at that time uh, was in charge of all yeah, charge of england probs. this is how little i speak about the monarchy oh, in charge he was true. leading this he was effectively un- at the time yeah he was uh, so king george made sure that bill o'reilly would keep him updated on don bradman's health which in some ways is mm. ironical considering the relationship bill o'reilly and don bradman had so yeah uh, i look i don't know a lot about monarchy stuff but i'm i i reckon it's something like edward abdicates in 34 or thereabouts so probably it is george who King comes george. in who pops his clogs in 1952 uh, which i do know because we talked about that a few weeks ago on the show it came up because of the test match that india were playing against england right. when king george died Oh that's right yeah so i i think it was king george the 5th who was uh, uh in charge and uh, you know so there's a lot of uh, drama about his health people are worried that like you know forget about him coming back to cricket like mm. because the bloods uh, there's a lot of uh complications with the appendicitis surgery uh no no antibiotics sweet no antibiotics I mean, that, like, like i i think this, this is i find this thing really fascinating i think people don't really factor it in when they think about history. Penicillin isn't discovered until 1953, the same year that Queen Elizabeth is crowned after the death of George V and the same year that Edmund Hillary climbs Mount Everest with Tenzing Norgay. Anyway, 1953 big year. So and and they don't sort of make it work medically for a, another couple of years after that when Howard Florey follows up on Alexander Fleming's work and mm. and so on and so on. So you know, before that point, if you got an infection, it was like, well, I hope you don't die. Yeah. All the best. Or or we'll have to take the leg off. You know, I mean it, it's extraordinary how recent it is that that intervention into human life came along. Yeah, I mean antibiotics is the human life what in my opinion uh insurance is to fast bowling in terms of elongating the life of a fast bowler. If without insurance and I I've always been fascinated by that topic and I think you and I have discussed it during our long nights together when uh, you know if we would randomly wake up and start talking about Iqbal Siddiqui but bowling like <laughs> insurance is is a big role uh, I plays a big role in fast bowling so before that when you have to take care of your own body like and if you're running into bowl I know there's adrenaline and all of that you have you would have had to think about oh if I break down if I bowl this extra spell like you know my livelihood could be affected which has mm. changed with once insurance came into the being i know we've digressed from don bradman's appendicitis but you're right no antibiotics so he is in a grave danger of his life he survives by this time he's had enough of new south wales he moves to adelaide to holden street very close to my former um, house in norwood starts playing for kensington and so this is his first year so he wants to make an impact for south australia uh and, and it's it's funny when you start doing these kind of research uh, where it takes you right and i found um this beautiful piece which was written in the financial review in 1996 about this guy called harry hodgets who was a mo- member of the australian board of C- cricket control or control of cricket back then but also a very famous stock broker who then la- in, in his later years got into trouble uh, with the law but so he apparently played a huge role in bringing the dawn to adelaide also giving him a job as a stockbroker so the don worked for mr hodgett for a long time before he started his own stockbroking company and uh, i didn't know that he had a office right in the middle of the city just off grenfell street called don bradman stockbroking how cool would it imagine every visiting journalist would have posted a picture outside that on instagram back mm-hmm. in the day <laughs> if that instagram was a thing back then uh so 
he starts working as a stock broker and he starts and it was Hodgetts who allegedly convinced Saka or whatever they were called back then to name Bradman as captain because Bradman at this point hadn't captained anywhere majorly i think it oh, actually i'm wrong i mean i think it maybe captained australia bro no, he was named to captain australia but then you, he misses that late 1934 series of south africa where jack fingleton's uh, named cap or victor richardson is named captain so this is the first time he's really captaining uh, a major team and this leads to him then eventually taking over as australian test captain hmm. so you know there's a little bit of pressure on the don to make an impact for south australia even if you are don bradman and being don bradman what does he do scores 117 in his first game for south australia yeah tk don bradman okay tk yaar like you know let's see second game makes 233 okay he's getting yeah. serious now he's getting serious sure. now and the third game he says you know what you the team will make 569 i'll make 357 of those in four games that's still over 60%. The, it is. Like imagine the other team makes 569 and you go I'm going to peel off <laughs> Bannerman adjacent areas. Yeah. Like I'm going to make 3/5 of that myself. It it's unbelievable. I don't know why we don't speak about this innings more. And unfortunately that isn't a lot of uh, written material on this innings. And 229 of those runs he makes on uh, the first day it also makes him uh, gives him the world record the f- that's his fifth triple hundred which is a world record and he also goes past uh, Warren Barsley's 53 uh, hundreds in first class cricket which was a record back then for Australia uh, so a lot happening in the don's life from the move mm-hmm. to adelaide and this inning so that was 357 for uh, paul for australia yes mm-hmm. 357 from an english perspective for alan simpson a couple of things Bobby Abel also made 357 not out but this happened uh, a few years before the dawn did it so Bobby Abel's 357 not out uh, i think still stands as one of the highest scores ever made for Surrey and at that point was the highest score uh, at the oval which was uh, then beaten by uh, Len Hutton who made the 364 if i'm not mistaken so Bobby Abel i'm sure you guys have covered in detail in the past uh, on story yeah. time so I won't get too deep into his uh, life story, but yeah, as a three fifty-seven not out carries his bat. So I mean, you know, that was his thing. What did Bobby Abel do? If you let him open the batting, he won't get out till everybody else has got out, right? Like that was the mm-hmm. Bobby Abel thing to do back in the day. But I found fascinating, and I, I'll tell you why when we get to the next answer at some point. The fact that Bobby Abel was just five four, and you know, there's these famous, uh, or I found a lot of these uh, famous cartoons from back then where. Uh, massive wg grace who looks three times taller than he was is towering over little bobby abel but it's also a lovely name as well bobby abel uh, and yeah so hmm. that was 1357 for allen the other 357 and is slightly uh, closer to home uh, is the match aggregate when england and india played each other in a t20i in uh, at birmingham <laughs> in 2014 and i'll tell you tell you why it has a little to do with twitter So I mean it's 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 an infamous game for MS Dhoni because this is the game where India needs 16 to win of the last over and Ambati Raidu is batting at the other end who at that point time was at his peak of his powers also making his T20 debut so Dhoni uh, refused to take a single twice in that over which is kind of bizarre he hits six uh, Chris Wokes is the bowler six two then refuses a single then hits a four so five needed of uh, two balls refuses a single again and then fails to hit a boundary of the last ball and Ooh. there is ambati raidu who 
can be quite temperamental and he's not a spring chicken yes he's making his debut for india but he's been around for longer than ms dhoni has in the indian uh-huh. cricket circles and uh, yeah ambati raidu wasn't happy and it was a strange strange finish like yes you are the finisher but refusing singles in a t20i chase when you're batting with the top order batter was um, yeah. a, a little strange but this is why i remember this game very well so jason roy makes his international debut for england in this game and a younger bharat like 9 years ago was so excited by the fact that jos jason roy was um, making his debut and this is long before story time i did a lot of research and i found out that the last roy which is a very bengali surname by the way i know maybe jason roy is slightly bengali no mm-hmm. wonder he's playing for kkr to play in an india england international was pranab roy son of the famous pankaj roy in 1982 and it took me a long while back then to figure this out and bharat sure. with like whatever 280 followers that he had on twitter back then very confidently tweets it out thinking this is it right like you think that that tweet's going to make you people are going to be like mm. fuck this guy knows so much guess how many likes and retweets it's got i went and checked uh, it yesterday not 357 not zero so <laughs> so this was a and i did not tweet again for 3 years it was my protest <laughs> against twitter i said if such a wonderful tweet doesn't get like and there would be people saying oh i took a shit this morning and 800 likes or mm. i wore green even though it was a day i wanted to wear blue 800 retweets and here is bharat like you know putting history out there pranab roy mm. the last roy to play in india england game nobody cared so this game really put me off twitter for a while but now i'm back so there you go 357 but that was a match aggregate in that very closely contested t20i ah uh, man yeah look he he had a few um a few strange finishes in his time msd um you wrote the book on him so i'll leave it there it's not um, in there yeah uh, we'll we'll no absolutely i'm sure it wouldn't be <laughs> The Donny touch. Uh, look, he he did finish and win a lot of games mm. by designating himself the finisher, but yeah, if you need say what you need 5 to win, which means you need 4 to tie, which means if you take the single, then you need 4 to win, yeah. hitting 4 to win off the last ball in a T20. With Raidu, yeah. Pretty manageable, yeah. you know. You 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 back a lot of players in to do that. Anyway, We've got a double header to finish our new numbers for this week. Matt Cutrus has come through with 216 in pounds and Duncan Davies also has 216 in USD. The way the double headers work sometimes is that if someone higher up the list has the same number as you and if you the answer that we're going to give could possibly belong to either of those people, mm. we do them as one number just in case. So, here we go. Matt did send a clue. I'll do a more personal pledge in the future but for now I have a 216 because I just want to hear Jeff play the hits. And Duncan, you didn't have a clue so this means that you could be incorporated into this as well. Play the hits. What does that mean on story time? Listeners to this show will know two things. One is that Clary Grimmett took 216 test wickets. Two is that I talk a lot about how Clary Grimmett took <laughs> 216 test wickets. Why? Uh, why why am i why am i into clary grimmett why is um mm. somebody who is you know not that ancient in mm. the 21st century so into clarence victor grimmett who was born in the 1800s well firstly it's just it started with the numbers so i remember seeing clary grimmett on the wicket lists when shane warne was climbing the lists of australian test wicket takers you know and they used to pop them up on tv before you could 
go on the internet and stats crunch um, to your heart's content, you know, unless you were some kind of early online pioneer who was beige boxing telephone lines or whatever it is. Now, Clary Grimmett would be shown as 216 test wickets from 37 tests. And I remember just being befuddled by this. I, I couldn't get my head around it. I worked it out on paper. I was like, hang on, that's 5.84 wickets per test match. I remember doing this. I remember the first time I did this sitting in the kitchen. And I, and I was thinking like, okay, we're watching these great bowlers kicking oh. around and they might take three to four across their careers per test. Like four wickets per test is a very good return. And he's taken nearly six. And I, and I, was, I just marvelled that it was even possible, Barrett. I was like, what, what, where does this come from? He's not the absolute highest of all time. So there's a few from the earlier generation where they just hoovered up wickets even more than... Grimmett did, Sid Barnes, JJ Ferris, Tom Richardson, George Lohman, Terra Turner, you would have heard us talk Mm -hmm. about all of them on Storytime if you're a long-time listener. And of course the Sri Lankan marvel in Mataya Muralitharan who bowled 50% or more of the overs that Sri Lanka ever bowled basically um, and so was able to to hoover them up. Interestingly, another Sri Lankan right at this moment is top of the pops. Prabhath Jayasuri oh, yeah. is currently the highest in history at 7.14 wickets per test. But he's played seven tests, two in New Zealand, five at Gaul. <laughs> <laughs> he's played more tests on one ground than he's played in any other country. So that's it for the moment. They're the only players with mm. a higher wicket per match rate than Clary Grimmett. And if you bring it back to players who took over 200 wickets, it's only Murali who has a higher strike rate per match. So Clary is born in Dunedin in New Zealand in 1891. I know we've talked about him on the show before and I'm sure I made the joke about Australia stealing everything from New Zealand. Pavlova, Farlap, Crowded House, Russell Crowe before we gave him back. And Clary Grimmett is another one, born on Christmas Day famously. Um, He plays first-class cricket for Wellington But he moves to Sydney just before the First World War looking for work, not really thinking about his cricket career, but he he plays grade cricket in Sydney, never cracks the New South Wales side because Arthur Maley is the incumbent at that point. And eventually he moves to Melbourne to get married and he ends up playing for Victoria a little bit, gets a couple of games for them, but doesn't get an extended run. And so he moves to Adelaide and he's two months short of his 33rd birthday when he finally gets a good run at first-class cricket with South Australia. And that season, 1924-5, I think it is, he bowls the house down. He takes at least a four-for, if not a five-for or a six-for, in every match that he plays that season up until the first test that he plays. Usually South Australia lose because they make no runs, but Mm. he still takes bags of wickets every time. He's their best player. He takes wickets against the touring English side for South Australia, Then he takes nine in a match to beat New South Wales to get a rare win over New South Wales. Into the test team for the fifth test in Sydney, takes 11 wickets on debut in the match. Dodger Weissel, who we mentioned before, one of his wickets. Frank Woolley, who we mentioned. Andy Sandham, who we mentioned. He gets them all out. Um, He's a tiny little fella. He's got no hair by the time he's playing top-level cricket. He always wears the cap to to hide the dome. And he's got that action that we've talked about before, that curious action because he's so little and wiry. He he kind of trots up to the crease and then just slings his arm around the shoulder. He he doesn't raise the arm at all. It's it's not quite perpendicular. It's not quite Kedajadov coming around completely on the side, but it's it's on a maybe like a 20-degree angle. And 
he doesn't spear the ball in flat like most bowlers who you see doing it from a, a low angle. It means that they're they're trying to get as little air on the ball as possible. They want to sort of burrow it under the bat. But he throws it up from that point. He turns his wrist over from that low angle and flips it out of the wrist and gives it huge elevation and gets huge turn. There's this vision of him sitting on the grass at a cricket ground and he's just holding a cricket ball in his hand in front of his body and he just pops it out of his hand, doesn't even move his arm, just pops it out of his hand and it spins off the pitch drastically in one direction as a leg break and then in the other direction as a googly. I mean, you you can find a bit of vision of him bowling. There's some old, really old stuff. Um, You know, it's not HD close-up, but you can get a sense of, of how he used to go about things. He pioneers the flipper. He's the one who figures out how to squeeze the ball out between his fingers and shoot it through. And he famously disguises that click of the fingers by clicking the fingers on his left hand when he's bowling a regular leg break. So you'll hear the click for different deliveries and you won't necessarily be able to pick which one's the flipper. And those who played with him and and faced him said that his accuracy was the thing. He got lots of LBWs with the straight ones that skidded on with the flipper or the top spinner. And and that, you know, that's an era when umpiring is bloody hard for spinners. You don't get leg before wickets as a spinner and he did because he he was able to use that straight ball so well. And after his 11 on debut, he just takes bags. He's like a Sydney lawyer on a night out. It's just bags, bags, bags. He, he takes five for in his first innings in England, <laughs> Leeds. He takes a six for and nine in the match at Brisbane in 1928 when Australia get absolutely annihilated at the Exhibition Centre ground. We've talked about that game mm. before, but he still comes away from the game with nine. He's the foil for Bradman in 1930, takes 10 in the test at Nottingham. Takes eight at Lords, six at Leeds. Seven for 87 in an innings becomes his best analysis when the West Indies visit at the end of 1930. And then he betters that by taking seven in both innings against South Africa at home in Adelaide in 1932. The 1934 Ashes, eight in the match at Knotts, eight at the Oval, seven at Leeds. And then 1935-36, he goes to South Africa. Ten innings in South Africa. Two for, three for. Three for, three for, five for, five for, three for, seven for, seven for, six for. 44 wickets in the series, still the Australian record, still third on the all-time record list. Jim Lake is 46 and Sid Barnes with 49 are the only better wicket returns in a series ever, ever, still. He becomes the first to go past 200 wickets in a career at that point with that insane ratio of 5.84 and that's the point where Bradman decides to tip him out of the team for Frank fucking Ward, who's <laughs> Bradman's club cricket leg spin teammate who Bradman fancies as a test candidate who gets picked, does nothing, does nothing. Okay, he took six for once, but he went for heaps. And mm. Clary Grimmett often went for heaps as well. Like, yeah. You know, let's not, let's not rose tint it too much. He, he often bowled huge numbers of overs and, and if he took a bag of wickets he might go for 100 at the same time and there were games when he got whacked around and and didn't take bags of wickets but he was for the most part through that test career so prolific and yeah when he got pushed out of the team he was about to turn 45 that Christmas which is sure but that was the style of the time Australia were picking players for debuts at the age of 46 Mm. at this point you know Don Blackie Bert Ironmonger they were picking old spinners it was the era of old spinners And just to shove it up, Bradman, one last time, three years after being dumped from the team, he breaks the Shield 
season record with 73 wickets in the season, which also sets the all-time wicket-taking record in the Shield with 513. That he holds to this day Clarence Victor Grimmett, who played up until 1941 before giving the game away. At the age of 49, nobody could do it quite like the Fox. Brilliant. And like I always like to remind people, uh, apart from the many uh, tributes or the many shrines he has around Australia, not too many, uh, there's the Clary Grimmett block uh, in the Furl shopping centre, uh, just in the, in the middle of the parking lot, right outside the Indian store. Because when he did move to Adelaide, that's where he lived uh, famously in Furl. Uh, the thing is, family lived there for many years after the late great Larry Grimmett moved on. So yeah, well done. Uh, that You did play the hits. All about the hits. We've got one more hit from you, Parat. It is Simon Old Trafford mm. with 205 in pounds. Um, and we know from Simon's history that all of his no pledges have been about Nottinghamshire. I mean, this could be a tribute show to county cricket, right? Like we've mm. gone from Gloucestershire to Northamptonshire to now to Nottinghamshire. And thanks to Simon Old Trafford, uh, I now know a lot about Nottinghamshire cricket as well, just like I do about Northamptonshire cricket. Obviously, slightly more successful than Northamptonshire. Uh, they won the, the county championships a few times, uh, a handful of times, I would say. So, 205, it's me, so multiple choice. So, you get three, three answers. Eric Meads uh, played 205 games for, uh, for Nottinghamshire in the 19... 19- uh, I think he played one game before the Second World War and then came back and played three or four very successful seasons as one of those old-school wicketkeepers who batted number 11. I think he finished with the first-class average of nine, made one half-century. So imagine that. Uh, the bowlers who bowled to him in, in 205 games. <laughs> he makes one half-century. Um, average nine, but um, interesting character. You see... Uh, pictures of him he looks like a wicketkeeper from the 1940s who couldn't bat he must have been exhausted because he's batting at 11 he makes the 50 he's out in the middle for hours and then he has to run off and keep wicket i know the team balance is off he just can't get a break he can't get any time to put his feet up (laughs) so uh yeah i mean look he took 366 catches 80 stumpings uh uh kept to some uh pretty famous bowlers from that era so uh, well done, Eric Meads. We won't uh, spend too much time on him. Oh, or just going back to the last answer, the Bobby Abel one. There's a, it's it's a memorabilia you could say about his three fifty seven. It was carved in wood. Uh, I think uh, Bobby Abel was called the Governor. Uh, so three fifty seven, uh, not out, inscribed in the right corner of of a piece of wood, which in two thousand six was auctioned off for five thousand pounds. So someone really liked Bobby Abel. Um, mm. So back in the day, you couldn't get highlights of his 357. So someone just said 357, not out Bobby Abel. So you know, someone hang, is hanging on to it somewhere in England. Uh, but yeah, going back to Nottinghamshire. So Eric Mead, like I said, uh, played 205 games for them. Uh, there's, I mean, how can you speak about Nottinghamshire without talking about the great Harold Larwood, right? So in uh, going back to them winning county championships in 1929, they win the county championship for the second time. Um, and Harold, this is when the Larwood Vos combination has really come together. So Bill Vos is uh, the leading wicket taker for them that season. But Harold Larwood, well, this is stretching it a little bit with 2.05. But Harold Larwood plays 20 games and takes five five wicket hauls. So kind of pushing it. 
But the reason I bring Harold Lauwood up from 1929 is I found this pretty interesting piece uh, in one of the newspapers. I can't figure out what newspaper this is from 1929. And it's about Harold Lauwood's speed estimates. You know, now we are in the era of speed guns where, you know, mm-hmm. Shoaib Akhtar is clocked at over uh, 100 miles an hour, 101 miles an hour, was yeah. that it? One, 161 Ks. Oh, 161 Ks, that's right. Yeah, so which is around like just over 100 miles an hour. But in 1929, <laughs> nobody can ever break this record from Harold Lawood because I don't know how they were uh, recording the speed of the ball leaving uh, the fast bowler's hands and what speed it arrives at. Uh, at the batter back then but he was clocked at are you ready for this so Harold Lawood the great man from the mining town who shattered Don Bradman or tried to with body line thanks to Douglas Jardine was clocked mm. at 564 miles an hour <laughs> 564 miles an hour well no wonder they struggled to get that on him goodness me that's so, uh, that's faster than a seven four seven. It is, it is. Uh, and uh, back then, though, there was no, there were no seven four seven. So it said it was faster than your average express train. How fast are the express trains going? If <laughs> they were clocking five hundred and sixty four miles an hour back in the day. But... What? <laughs> Doc Brown is struggling to get that train up to eighty eight miles an hour. Yeah. You know, with Marty when it's going down to the bridge and the bridge hasn't been built yet and, you know, uh, the past, there's literally the point of no return. They're just trying to get to 88. Yeah, pretty much. 588. <laughs> How many... You can't get a tray now that goes 588. Like, uh, I mean, you, you, your Shinkansens are like 600 kilometres, so yeah. whatever that is, 360 yeah. miles. Yeah, it's... Um, so, I mean, when they say Harold Lawood was fast... He was bloody fast. Like it's, it's, think about it. If he was bowling a ball at five hundred and sixty-four miles an hour, it's reached like the next town, <laughs> next county. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's reaching it, Australia in seventeen hours. <laughs> Sorry, I just couldn't go beyond Harold Lawood and wow. the speed at which he was allegedly bowling at um, in nineteen twenty-nine. But I, I have another one though. I mean, uh, okay. and I'm sure, uh, and also. While reading about Harold Lawood, I also learned about, uh, and it's all about us learning, right? Story time is all about uh, you and me learning more about this great game of cricket and its history. I also learned about Walter Marshall. Not many speak about him. He was the great curator who apparently uh, was the one who started producing all these uh, sporting wickets uh, at Trent Bridge. He lived in Trent Bridge as well in an apartment by the pavilion. Great life he would have had. Um, So he sort of uh, is credited with having given Harold Lawood and Bill Woes the, the push to become really fast bowlers by giving them the green tops at Trent Bridge. And right. that led to a lot them you know, taking a lot of wickets for, for the county and then you know, making their name for, for England. So Walter Marshall was a name I never heard of before. So he also played a little bit of first-class cricket. Um, so my last answer for 205 is, uh, again, I'm sure you guys have spoken about this guy quite a bit in the past, is Billy Gunn. We, you spoke about Williams at the, at the start. And uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I love Billy Gunn because, you know, one of my favorite wrestlers in the 90s was badass Billy Gunn, who in his later years was called the Ass Man. I'm sure Billy Gunn from Nottinghamshire was also called the Ass Man for different reasons at some point. Undoubtedly. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and one of those reasons could be his height. You're a tall man. You're a really tall man. So Billy Gunn was six feet, three inches tall. 
And uh, he was so wow. tall that people always spoke about his height. And uh, Wisden oh, yeah. famously, wrote, uh, I mean, there's a report in Wisden talking about how someone so tall. Uh, and you think 6'3", you don't think so tall. I mean, you do if you're in India. But oh, for, for that era, absolutely it is. Yeah. I mean, f- for that era, he's Manute Bowl. He is because the average it. height in the 1880s, and I did my research here, in the United Kingdom amongst males was five feet, six inches. So suddenly you have, a, you have the great Kali playing cricket, basically, right? Like when you have mm. someone at 6'3 playing cricket. And uh, there's, yeah. A, it, it's, yeah, it, it really is. Like it's like a seven feet, three inch. Mm. Not quite Mohammed Irfan, but someone even taller than that. If the average height is 5'6 back then. So at 6'3, Billy Gunn. And A.N. Hornby. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar with the sky. I know, exactly. It is like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar yeah. playing cricket. Not now, but in the 80s. The bowling to Gunda Pavishwanath. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> now that would have been quite a sight if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar bowled to Gunda Pavishwanath. Uh, but yeah, so, so it's, he was so tall and he was known for his uh, very... Uh, but for a big man, he wasn't a fast scorer, which is what I found out. So he made 205 in um, 1887. So one of his first mm-hmm. big major scores. Uh, he started off with Nottinghamshire in the early 1880s, but it took him a while to really get going. And he makes this 205, which is the the, the nerd pledge, uh, and which is what got me interested in Billy Gunn, apart from him being the ass man of the era. Uh, so he was known for uh, <laughs> taking his time to score runs, but very, very elegant uh, from all reports for someone so tall. Uh, and also a great fielder. And to the extent that A.N. Hornby once remarked, no one but a damn giraffe would have got near it. And obviously, if now it kind of explains why, I mean, 6'3", when the average height is 5'6", him being called a giraffe, everything fits in, right, with the great Billy Gunn when you think about it. Well, it's exactly the way that we talk about Cameron Green. Yeah. I mean, you literally cannot watch him play in a match without people talking about the fact that he is tall and that at Gully he covers more territory. I mean, it's just a physical fact, so you sort of have to comment on it when he dives away and takes a screamer. So, yeah, yeah, we, we can't stop talking about somebody who is proportionally taller than other people in a similar way, I guess. Yeah, especially when they're playing sport, and especially when they're playing yeah. a non-physical sport. Though, I mean, having, I mean, speaking of physical sports, he also had this ability uh, when he played soccer, and he played, uh, I think, two games for England. So he's one of the few double athletes, if you want to call him that. Uh, so he played for England against Scotland, and this I found interesting. I'm not sure whether this is hundred percent accurate. But he was known to have this ability to throw the ball in with one arm. And he was so good and he could create such distance uh, while playing soccer that the Scottish defence had so many problems that they pressed charges. And apparently the two-handed style of throwing the ball in in soccer was as a result of the Scottish protesting against our mate Billy Gunn. Billy Gunn. Imagine that. The yeah. Assman was killing it across all yeah. platforms back then. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, he could play soccer. He could play cricket. And also, of course, he's one half of the famous Gunn and Moore bat company that, uh, you know, people still use the Gunn and Moore bats mm. these days. And so, Billy Gunn had a lot to do with um, cricket in during his playing days, after his playing days, uh, and uh, also the Gunn name. Is famous in Nottinghamshire cricket. You spoke about families in cricket. George and John, his nephews, played for Nottinghamshire and played for England. I think George Gunn still holds the record for most wickets for the county. But yeah, it all started with uh, Billy Gunn. 
the ass man. There you go, Simon Trafford. Uh, if, if, if ass man was where you were going with your <laughs> pledge, you've been well and truly served. Um, those are our new numbers. If you want to play Nerd Pledge, very easy to do. You go to patron.com slash the final word patron is spelt p-a-t-r-e-o-n that's the website where you can sign up to subscribe to the show and support that that means that you help us keep doing what we're doing you can get involved with the final word chat page where everybody who is on the patron can hang out and talk cricket and talk other things um, the nicest corner of the internet and it's popping off in there at the moment and uh, you can be part of the show going forward so drop us a line if you want now i got a we might just have time to sneak in a mm. little revisit or two, because which I wanted to do now because these are numbers that you answered a few weeks ago. Now, you might remember Alex Brown with his 136 and you talked about Peter Petherick, oh, yes. a New Zealand bowler who took a hat-trick. And there was another answer about um, a famous win over India involving Bob Kunis, uh, all of which Alex enjoyed, uh, but he clarified. He said, my pledge is a more modern white ball moment in New Zealand cricket. And I think that this has to be at the start of the 2019 World Cup. Now, we always talk about New Zealand at the end of that World Cup Mm -hmm. in the final that they tied twice and never lost and somehow didn't get a trophy. But the way they started that World Cup, you might remember, they blew away Sri Lanka on a green top in Cardiff. Mm. Matt Henry had the ball moving, takes three for 29. Lockie Ferguson through the middle, three for 22. Uh, everybody gets wickets. Nisham, Colin de Grandhomme. They don't even need Trent Bolt to take a wicket until right at the end. All out for 136 Sri Lanka in 29 overs. Frankie Runes, big Frank Karuna Ratna, mm-hmm. carries the bat. A rare carrying of the bat in one day cricket, 52 not out, having opened. Eight scores in single figures through the innings. New Zealand chase it in 16.1 overs without losing a wicket. Martin Guptill and Colin Munro. So because net run rate says that Sri Lanka have faced 50 overs and New Zealand have faced 16 overs, New Zealand's net run rate after the game is plus 5.7, as in they've scored 5.7 runs per over faster than their opponent has, which sets them up for the tournament, basically. Effectively, it's a game in hand. It's an extra win. Um, They go on to beat Bangladesh, Afghanistan. They get the rain off against India. They win a couple of close ones against South Africa, West Indies, and then uh, they basically get worse as the tournament goes on because they lose to Pakistan, Australia, England. They look pretty shoddy by the time they reach the semifinals. But 38 days after they beat Sri Lanka, it still leaves them enough fat on net run rate that they get past Pakistan into fourth spot. And then they're able to mug India in the... The, the two-day semi-final at Old Trafford, defending a modest chase, and then they use the same method in the final, which just about works, put it that way. So that's, uh, I reckon that's your 136, Sparrett, for your Peter Petherick number. Ah, well done. I mean, um, I still think Alex Brown, Peter Petherick uh, is what you should have been talking about. And, and but mm-hmm. No, but uh, I, 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 I get it, and you're right about... People talk about New Zealand being unfortunate to have missed out on becoming world champions at Lords. Fair enough. But it took a lot of other results for them to even qualify for the semi-finals. They had a very up-and-down World Cup. Like, they started strong, faltered. And that famous 100 from Carlos Brathwaite in, uh, I don't know where it was, but when West Indies played New Zealand, where West Indies almost chased it down. Uh, mm. And then he gets caught by who else but Trent Bold on the boundary. Uh, the bowling of Jimmy Nishim, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, that turns that game. So who knows, if they lost that game, they could mm. well have been knocked out much earlier than uh, 
Uh, you know, it looked like they could be, but uh, yeah, yeah, a couple of results went their way. I think that was Old Trafford again, wasn't it? The West Indies, I think, yeah, I New so. Zealand game um, from memory. So yeah, I was at Billy Joel that night. It was the yeah. only the only game of that World Cup that I missed <laughs> because. <laughs> of course. So, some, uh, I think it was Emma John. Someone had a had a, a, a randomly had a spare ticket. Go, Billy Joel's playing at Wembley. Want to go? I was like, you know what? I do. I yeah. do want to go. <laughs> I am an uptown girl. Now, Sam Ashworth is our other one with two dollars and eight pence. I reckon it was. You mm. talked about Ian both oh, yeah, course, making yeah. two hundred and eight, and Sam replied to say, "Well, the answer is not a million miles away, but it's not both them." My number is actually two numbers that when concatenated form 208 and they refer to when my first favourite cricketer made a surprising comeback. So after I looked up concatenated, um, which means putting two things together in a sequence, this is where we got to with with a little bit of help and I'll, I'll come back to that next week. Now, a surprising comeback. A surprising comeback happened in 2014. Andrew Flintoff retired from all cricket in 2010 became a TV host, travelled around the world, did cool shit, good on him, mm. um, lived, a, lived a broader life. Why did he come back? Weird sort of situation. So the MCC were playing a charity game against a World Eleven. Mm. Tendulkar was playing. Right. Flintoff was going to be in the team and then he got dropped. He got, he got punted from the MCC team because I think Brian Lara became available or something. <laughs> and he was cut. He was mad because he wanted to play with Tendulkar and mm. so he got pissed off and he went and talked to Lancashire and they said, yeah, go for it. If you want to come back and play, come back and play. Only for the blast, the T20 stuff. He played all of three matches in that season. I mean, he's 36 at this point and his knees are gone and he's bowling much slower than he did at his peak and he's listed to bat at number eight. Um, the first two games, not required to bat and then he's LBW for one. He bowls, I wouldn't say he bowls well, but he bowls successfully mm. in the way you can in T20 cricket. He takes some wickets, two for 36, three for 26, getting slogged to the deep. Um, and those are both group games. He doesn't play after that. They make the final lengths and he's not in the best 11 because Usman Khawaja's arrived and he's made runs in the quarterfinal. Yeah. I forgot that he was playing for Lancashire that mm. year. But Kabir Ali, the all-rounder, gets injured. Jared Kimber's piece on it at the time says, Kabir Ali was born injured. Kabir Ali will be injured after he's dead. So um, had some problems. So Flintoff gets recalled for the final. Takes a wicket with his first ball. Horrible delivery, like absolute long hop that gets slogged up in the air and someone catches it. Ends up at one for 20 off two overs, at which point they decide they don't want him to bowl anymore because he's going to get pogoed. He's listed to bat at number nine. So he's a shadow of him, his former self in terms of the, the influence he used to have on games. But he's required. They're seven wickets down in the run chase. They need 30 from 13 balls when he comes in. He squeezes a couple of singles. The wicket falls at the other end. And then the equation at 26 off eight balls, he bangs a six down the ground, hits a six over deep square leg. Oh. So suddenly... They're down to needing 14 off the last over. Oliver Hannon-Dolby was the bowler of that second last over and through Warwickshire's website I found this clip of him talking about that moment. So the first one, he stood really deep, stood literally bang on his stump. So he made my Yorker like a half volley, chipped it for six. So I'm like, oh gosh, he's messing around the crease here. This one, because he's gone deeper, I'm going to have to go fuller. So I've gone fuller and then the second one, he's come out two yards out of his crease and made it a lawful toss, another six. 
I was thinking that for God's sake. Now looking back now, he hadn't been playing cricket all summer. I should have just bowled him a slower ball or something that he wouldn't have picked, or even a bouncer. I sort of executed exactly what I wanted. There was one point where I just smiled at him. You know, he was pretty pumped up when he told me to uh, sod off. <laughs> so Flintoff's off strike for the last over. Chris Wokes is bowling it, but he gets back on strike immediately by sprinting a bye and diving in. He thinks he can do it. They need 13 off five. Surely this is bullshit, right? Like, surely everyone on the ground is like, come on, this can't be serious. He can't make a comeback after five years and then come out and hit the winning runs in a final. It's got to be bullshit. And <laughs> it turns out it is bullshit because Chris Wokes hits his Yorkers. Flintoff squeezes them out. He scores a two and then another two and then a one, but he can't get back for the second run. So Stephen Parry, who's even lower order, is left on strike. Mm for the last two deliveries. They have to come back for the second when he hits one out to the deep because then they need six off the last ball and he can't hit a six off the last ball to win it. But just for a minute, there was that flicker of magic, that flicker of potential and Andrew Flintoff finishes 20 not out from eight balls, which if you put together makes 208, which is Sam Ashworth's number. Too good. Yeah, that is uh, much better than Ian Botham making 208. Yeah, so there you go, Sam Ashworth. But yeah, I, I need to. Uh, if there are clips of this inning somewhere, I'm sure there are. It's 2014. and uh, There's the whole thing. Warwickshire have the entire game oh, on their right. website with like DVD commentary. Oh, wow. So that's where the, the Oliver Hannah Dolby oh, clip right, comes right, right. from. Yeah. Because so they they have obviously Zoom called all of these players who played yeah. in that yeah. um, in that title for Warwickshire and asked them about different points of the game <laughs> and so they pop up on screen like right. their heads pop up as you're watching the over when this happened or the over when that happened. It's quite funny. Brilliant. All right, Jeffrey, that was a lot of fun. So now I'll have to scoot off and uh, mm-hmm. to get to my appointment in time. How fast do you think I'll have to drive? <laughs> Drive to <laughs> you're, you're right on time. You're, you've got three minutes before you've got to walk out the door. We've timed this to perfection. Yeah, and, and like, uh, you know, I'll have to drive as fast as Harold Harwood was bowling in 1929 <laughs> at 564 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, that, imagine if someone sent in that number as an earth place. That's all. Like, if someone just said 5.64 Harold Harwood, we would have never got it. But, like, uh, unless he took a 5.64 oh at some point. Like, yeah. like, how do you, how can you even <laughs> conceive of something going that fast in the, like, oh, what is this? The, I the don't 30s? think there was a lot of fact. Checking in the newspapers in 1929 by the looks of it, yeah. Yeah, and people talk about like, oh, people have lost trust in the media. Like, <laughs> when did they ever have trust in the media? Like, you shouldn't, you should never have had it. Like, exactly. you, if you spend enough time in old newspaper archives, you realize this is just crazy people. These it are the is. people who are like down the bottom of the replies in Twitter. Like, <laughs> they've just got themselves a printing press and they're like, it's the Goldfields Gazette. And then suddenly it's on the record as, <laughs> yeah, as exactly. like uh, established fact, you know. They're like, gentlemen are dying from a lack of whiskey in the morning, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and then it'll just get, ah, oh, medical practitioner, Dr. P.H. Spwarf says that a shot of whiskey before noon yes. is the key to fending off diphtheria. And away <laughs> they go. And it's in the paper. It's got to be true. It is. All right. I think that's enough from us. Barrett Sundarason, thank you for being our guest host on the show today. This has been Storytime. There'll be more coming up from the final word through the week ahead. So keep an eye on your feed and an ear on the voices that come out of it. This has been the final word. See you next time. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.